Well, hey, everybody. Um, welcome. So good to see you all. Uh, I am excited today because I'm going to teach on a topic that I'm hopefully is going to bring encouragement. Uh, so we are going to be in Romans chapter 8 today. And um, I need to give a quick review. I know I've done this every time. Um, but I do need to review for the sake of clarity um, and for the sake of our memories. We've been in this series on the doctrines of grace. We've done this every first Sunday where we've taught a different doctrine for clarity. And the idea is that we're looking at the gospel. We want to know the gospel clearly. And then we're looking at it from a series of angles to understand these key things related to the gospel. So one, two things we want to see happen. One, I want the Christians to know the gospel well and be confident in what Christ is doing. Two, um, I want us to be able to so clearly be equipped to proclaim the gospel so that people would come to Christ. And those are the two goals in this. Uh, so with that in mind, many of you know that when we proclaim the gospel here, we try to share it in kind of an overarching context so that people understand. Because um, I don't know about maybe some of you before you were saved and somebody gave the gospel to you and you're like, Jesus died for you. And you, you have no idea what that means or what the context is. Or if people say, hey, say this prayer right now. And there, if there's not an understanding of why Jesus died or why he rose from the dead, it's hard to understand exactly what the gospel is about. And so we tend to say it in four points. You don't have to do it this way. This is how we do it often. We talk about creation, that God has created everyone and everything. As such, he owns everyone and everything. Specifically, he created man in his image to bring him glory through worshiping him and being in relationship. That's creation. That's point one. However, as we know, man sinned. Not only did Adam and Eve, the first humans, sin, but we have all individually sinned, all of us except for Jesus. And so in sinning, we are separated from Christ. We are separated from the God of creation. We are born in sin because of our father Adam sinning and bringing all this death into the world. So as a result of the fall, there's death and destruction in the world. That's a reality. We see it. A little side note, in evangelism, it's pretty easy to point to all that is wrong in the world. And I tend to not shy from it. I'm like, yeah, um, the problem of evil, as they call it, the idea of suffering in the world being an argument against God, I, I always come right back and say, like, no, this, we did this. This is our sin. Then he is also providing the antidote for it. A little side note, what we call um, presuppositional apologetics. I always also bring in that, like, you wouldn't even know what evil was if God had not written the law of God in you and put in you a conscience so that you see what is wrong in the world. Anyway, that goes without saying. Uh, the third point, and the, what we actually say is the gospel, is redemption. So we have creation, we have fall, we have redemption. Redemption is this good news that Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin, and then he rose from the dead, really rose from the dead, bodily. Every way resurrection is, is implied. He rose from the dead, and that is our future hope, that we will be able to have a resurrection like Christ's resurrection. That's 1 Corinthians 15. When we talk about the gospel, this is what we're talking about. Right? We talk about effects of the gospel. We would say the new creation, God is making us new. He's sanctifying us. He's also making this world new, and he has a plan to redeem this world. We're going to talk about that a little bit today in Romans 8. But what I've noticed is people have a tendency to mix up the gospel with the effects of the gospel. And so people say, well, hey, everybody, the gospel is racial reconciliation. And I'm like, well, no, it's, it's not. Like, the gospel is that Jesus died to pay your sin debt and rose from the dead to give you new life. If you really have your heart changed, 
God will rip that racism right out of your heart when you're saved. That's part of sanctification. But the sanctification is not itself the gospel. Does that make sense? It's an effect of the gospel, right? People will say, well, the gospel is that God loves you. And I'm like, no, it's not. I mean, he does love you, and it's part of why he's made the gospel happen. But the gospel is that Jesus died to pay your sin debt and rose from the dead to give you new life. Please do not mix up these other things that might even be true and wonderful, but that are not themselves the gospel. Because when we mix up either the law with the gospel or the effects of the gospel with the gospel, we get into error really fast. Anyway, this is all preliminary. Sorry. Uh, trust me, we're going to get to the doctrine itself in a second. Um, so when we talk about the gospel, just to reiterate, we talk about Jesus died for your sin and he rose from the dead. That is the gospel. Praise God. Um, so when we went through all of these points of the doctrines of grace, uh, we started with talking about the fallenness of mankind, that we're all sinful. Unless God does a miracle, we're not going to be saved. We're not going to believe in him. Second, we talked about unmerited adoption. And this is a key one that gets mixed up a lot. God didn't save me because he looked at me and said, that one's got potential, Right? God didn't, God didn't say, well, he's already done some good things. Let's save him. That's, he's already gotten on a good start. There's no merit in this. God saved me because of who he is, not because of who I am. God looked at me and he says, you're my child. I'm saving you. Like, it's adoption. It is good news. It's moving from death to life. Unmerited uh, adoption. Third, we talked last week, or two weeks ago, two months ago, whatever, about particular atonement. And just put very simply, this just means not universalism. Um, it means that not everybody is automatically saved. Uh, this is part of why we proclaim the gospel. We want everybody to hear the gospel so that they can respond, and hopefully many will repent and believe. Third, we talked about regeneration, that God is the one who makes us alive, that he just says, bam, and it's like being resurrected. And I always say, like, I mean, he, I didn't choose to be born the first time. I did not, get choose, I did not choose to be born the second time. He just made it happen. He made me alive. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking about, actually, Bucky is not here today, but he has a wonderful story about in prison when he, I mean, he was, a, he was a God hater and it was very clear. And somebody introduced him to the Gospel of John and he talks about like in his cell reading, well, long story, somebody had to explain it to him because he, he learned to read reading the Gospel of John. Wonderful story, talked to Bucky, he has a wonderful testimony, but he says, God just did something in me and he made me alive. Great testimony. Everybody with me? That's all review. Everybody's with me. Good. All right, so let's talk about today the concept of perseverance. And I'm bringing this up for several reasons, but people have a tendency to have questions about this idea of perseverance. Uh, and it shows up in about three different ways. One, people are like, what, what about the fact that I sin? You have people that are like, and hopefully you can relate to this. If not, I'm worried about you. But if you can say like, you know what? I sin every day. How could God look at my wretched, sinful life where I keep on sinning? Can I really be saved? And I would say, if your heart is of repentance and you are growing in the Lord over time, I'm like, yeah, you can be. You will have mistakes. You will, I think as Paul describes in Romans 5 through 7, the idea is that, yeah, this is a struggle, that you will not be perfect in this life, but you are hopefully having a heart of repentance, you're growing. It, just because you are struggling with sin does not mean you're, you're not saved. If you're not struggling with sin, then I have a concern. More on that later. Second thing that comes up, people say, what about persecution? Like, what, what's going to happen to me if they torture me for my faith? What, what, how, will I stay faithful? 
right? There's a legitimate fear. And we can look back in church history and know that like, hey, there were people who stayed faithful and people that didn't. And people that get a little bit scared. So we're going to talk about what about what happens in persecution. The third question, and I, I'll be honest, we probably won't get to this one today. Uh, it'll be addressed in by nature of what we're talking about. I won't be able to address it in detail. I'm probably going to offer a recording extra to address this. But the quite third thing is, what about people who leave the faith? Like, what do we do about that? Like, what happens? Like, what, what's, what's the deal with them? Um, more on that later. But um, let's jump right into Romans 8. Let's talk about this idea of perseverance. Um, so Romans chapter 8, Paul is writing. Um, we're going to begin in verse 18. A key thing to understand about Romans, uh, it is a favorite of mine, being, you know, a pastor who loves the truth. It's just so well organized. We all just like Paul a lot. He's easy to read. Um, actually, I shouldn't say easy to read. He's organized in a way that is very helpful. Um, so Paul has written the first three part, first, first three chapters or so of Romans is about how sinful we are. Uh, we have a whole other section that talks about how Jesus paid for our sin debt. And then Romans 8 gets into some practical outworkings of this. So uh, Romans 8, starting in verse 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Key things here. Paul is assuming, he's presupposing that the Christian life will involve suffering. Very simple. He understands that that is the case. I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but as far as we understand, Nero had not quite ramped up persecution yet. Um, it was happening, but it wasn't on the widespread, horrific scale that it was about to be in a matter of just a few years. right? But they were still enduring persecution, just to be clear. So Paul seems to understand it's about to get worse. It's already difficult. So he's understanding suffering is built into the Christian life. And even, I always want to be careful because we have it pretty good here. We have not experienced intense persecution. I would say scripture does say that even slander is a part of persecution, even being Milan. And so I would say most of us have endured some mild form of persecution if we're a faithful believer. That's just, that, that happens. Um, We've, we've, we've missed out on some of the worst of it. But right now, as far as the number of people suffering, Christians seem to be suffering more from persecution now than any other time, any other time in history. Now, some of that has to do with the fact that there's more people in the world. Um, but this is a reality. Persecution has not gone away. We have avoided some of the worst of it here in the West. I think that's about to change. But that is a reality. So, But Paul is assuming that there is persecution built in. Here's the other thing he mentions here in this section. That creation it itself is awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. He uses this language that not only are we suffering, but creation has this angst. Like that God's own creation know, has this, I don't want to say knows, but there's this idea that like creation isn't right and is waiting for God to make all things new, and that making all things new is directly tied to what he says the revealing of the sons of God is. And the implication from context here, sons of God is used in different ways here, but the implication is that this is talking about believers, those who are adopted into the family of God. 
More on that later. Here's what's key. The end of verse 18 says that this idea that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The language is not just, hey, it's going to get a little bit better. Just hold on. The language is that the glory of God is such that whatever we're suffering now isn't even going to touch how wonderful it will be to see the glory of God revealed. Notice he doesn't say, it's going to get a little bit better and then you'll have more money. Or it's going to get a little bit better and then you won't get sick anymore. The reality is, we'll have wonderful provision in, in eternity like we will be sick, sinless. Or, I mean, we will not have sickness and we'll have all this wonderful blessing. But he doesn't see that as the main thing. The main thing is that you will see God's glory. Anyway, more on that. <coughs> so as we've seen here then, the issue is both us we are eagerly awaiting, and the creation itself is eagerly awaiting this revealing so that God gets the glory that he is due. So verse 22, it says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Uh, I have been privileged to be in proximity when all three of my children were born, and I cannot say that I understand suffering related to that, but here's what I would say. It is a mighty and wonderful thing the way that this suffering builds up to the moment of joy of a child being there. And it's no coincidence that Paul is using this illustration, this metaphor, to say it is going to be painful and then the best thing that could ever happen is going to happen. Verse 23, and not only the creation is, he's talking about, is groaning and waiting, but ourselves, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, we could say that there is a certain sense in which everybody in the world can get an idea that, like, hey, the world is not right, and I would like for it to be better. He's not talking just about that, though. He's talking about those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Those of us who are born again, have the Holy Spirit living in us, and hopefully we can look back and maybe think of our life before we knew God as opposed to now and think about how many things about the mess of the world we didn't care that much about. In fact, if you like sin, if you delight in your sin, you're pretty cool with a lot of the things going on, right? You're like, this is great. Like, you know, like we got more gay stuff going on. We got more sin over here going on. I'm, I, this is great, right? But when the Holy Spirit moves you from death to life, all of a sudden, those things that seem so pleasurable and so joyful are repulsive to you. Now, you still have a sin nature, right? And so just facing facts, we're still tempted by sin, but sin as sin, knowing that it grieves God and it's part of brokenness, is, is gross to us. Like, and this is why like, when, a, when a believer sins, like, it hits us, we're like, oh, God, I was prideful. I hate it. Right? It's not that sin does not entice you. It's that as sin, it's repulsive to you. And so he's using this illustration that the Holy Spirit is in us. And we're looking at this world that's broken and we're groaning inwardly as the creation does. But on a whole other scale, we're groaning for things to be made right because God has given us a taste of what it means to be in fellowship with him and with his saints. And we say, I can't wait for it to be what it's meant to be. Notice, can you notice what's happening here? Paul is addressing the issue of suffering, but he's also addressing this idea of like this building up, like to something good, right? Like a, 
I don't want to see, he's not telling a story here, but you know how like good stories where like they're building up, it's like, oh, it's getting worse, but something is about to happen. Um, more on that later on. Anyway, I can get really excited. Verse 24, so it says, for in, oh, I need to make another, he says, we who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Notice that Paul is using a qualitative uh, clause here. He says, adoption as sons, comma, the redemption of our bodies. Now, we would say, in fact, we talked last week when we went through the Ordo Salutis. Um, anybody remember Ordo Salutis? Got, I taught some Latin. Nobody remembers. It's, it's okay. Sorry, I worked really hard on that chart. It's all right. No. no. Ordo Salutis means order of salvation, and it goes through kind of like the logic of it. Brian's shaking his head because he remembers. <clears throat> the Marine remembers. This is, I'm just going give, to give credit. Our army guys will tease you later. Um, so the idea was we talked about how we're adopted at the moment of salvation, right? So what, is, what does this mean? What is this? Because it says we're waiting on our adoption. That's interesting. Now, and Paul qualifies this use of the term here. He says we're waiting on our adoption. The, and he says, what does he call it? The redemption of our bodies. Now, this is interesting. And the best illustration I can give for this is, I don't know if any of you know anyone, or maybe you have, adopted internationally. And uh, I've had some friends that adopted internationally. It's interesting because they work out all the paperwork. I mean, they've got pictures, and they'll say, this is, this is my son, right? They might even introduce, they'll be like, this is my son, and they'll hold up a phone and their picture. They're, they've worked out, I mean, the paperwork's done, all that kind of stuff. But they've got to go to Russia or to Latvia or to wherever, or to China or wherever it is they're going to go. And there's going to be visas. There's going to be all this thing worked out. And they're going to go there and they're going to get their son. And it's interesting because you could say, well, there's adoption paperwork that's done. But then there's the adoption. There's like, I'm going to pick up my kid today, right? And so the, the illustration here is that, yes, we're adopted. Like, we're, we're the sons of God. But there, he's been using this language of, like, the revealing of the sons of God. This idea that, like, God's going to come and get his kids. The redemption of our bodies. And so we have this first fruits of the Spirit. We're eagerly awaiting this coming of the Son of, of God to redeem us fully, this is what he seems to be talking about. All right, it says, for in, uh, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he, has, for, for what he sees? It, notice what he's saying here is that like, well, it's hope. I mean, it's a confident hope, but it, it wouldn't be hope if it was already here. The idea is something is yet to come. And I think part of this is Paul is saying like, because there are people who talk about salvation as if it's like this just form of enlightenment, where it's like, oh, look, aren't you living a better life now? Done. It's like, well, no, like we, things are still not 100% right. I still want something more than this right here, because God has put it in me, and it's because this is a hope for something that God is still yet to do, but we're confident we'll do. Verse 25 says, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. All right, cool. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray, what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Uh, hopefully you're following this. Paul is addressing perseverance, and he started by talking about this issue that, like, yes, it's a real thing, and something better is coming. 
right? We're going to see the glory of God. So he's, he's offered us the hope that is to come. Now he's talking about what's happening right now. And he says, the Holy Spirit is helping us in our weakness. But then he goes on to say that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. And I want you to picture in the, in the doctrine of the Trinity, we understand that the Trinity is three persons, one divine essence, which means that the persons of the Trinity have been in relationship for all eternity. There is no more perfect relationship than that of the Trinity. So we have the Holy Spirit on our behalf is communicating for us. He is, and Paul is saying, we don't even know what we should be praying. It doesn't get you off the hook for praying. You need to be praying, right? But it does. It gives this idea that like the Holy Spirit knows what you need to be praying and he groans on our behalf. Words that you don't even understand. Utterings too deep for words. And the eternal relationship of the triune Godhead, the Holy Spirit who knows that relationship better than anyone else ever could, he is there interceding on your behalf. That's good news, brothers and sisters. Yes, Paul, or Bob. No. No, it is not. Now, I would say that there is something to be said for a, a grief groan where you just cry out to God and say, oh, God, oh. Like, I think he understands our weaknesses, but no, un- unintelligible words, I would not say, are a biblical thing. There is I'm proclaiming content to God. I might actually write my thesis on that. More on that later. Um, <laughs> moving on. So understanding this, here it goes on though, verse 27, it says, and he who searches hearts, searches hearts like understanding, like my hearts, the Holy, he's referring to the Holy Spirit here, God here actually, the Holy Spirit is God just to be clear, but he's referring to God searches hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You understand what's happening here? The Holy Spirit is knowing what is in you. He is also knowing what is the will of God. He is interceding for God in, in, on your behalf in accordance with God's will. You see how this is like working like both ways? He knows God's will. He's inter- he knows your heart. He's interceding on your behalf to God in accordance with his will. You cannot get better prayers than that. And so the idea that, oh, so here we're talking about persecution, we're talking about suffering and perseverance, and here is, Paul is saying, there is a hope of God's glory, that we're go- it's going to be worth it, brothers and sisters. And then two, the Holy Spirit is working through you, meeting you in your weakness, and then interceding on your behalf. It's good news. Reading on then, um, we will go on down to verse 28. It says, and we know that for those who love God... Oh, and here we're getting into the nitty-gritty now, by the way, as if it wasn't already nitty-gritty. That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I want to just set aside for a moment and say, I know that this is an over-quote, not over-quoted, this is an often-quoted verse. Very seldom quoted in its full context. And so normally we'll throw this around and be like, hey man, everything's going to be okay, Romans 8, it's awesome. And uh, yeah, it's true. Um, I always like to put in the caveat here. It says, for those who love God, if you are not God's faithful child, he makes no guarantee of things working out for you. I actually had this conversation with a friend who is not a believer, and he was talking about how bad his life is. And in, you'd have to understand, I know him. I love this brother, and, and he's not my brother, unfortunately. And I remember I'm, I'm interacting with him, and I'm talking about like, well, 
I have confidence because I know everything's working out for my good in Christ. But God doesn't, and he's like, well, what about me? And I'm like, you have no, like, repent and believe the gospel, my friend. Like, you don't have this benefit. It's really interesting. I always like to point out, those who love God, there is a caveat here. This is not for the good of all mankind. This is God saying, it's going to be good for my kids. So, reading on. And this is where we get into more ditty-gritty. All right, so first of all, this means, doesn't mean that everything that happens is good. It means it's all going to be worked together for our good. Keep that in mind as we approach this next section. It says in verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We very seldom talk about the fact that Jesus is our big brother in this context. But this is what he's saying. That like, I am, I am being brought into the family of God. It's kind of cool. Right? Moving, more than kind of cool. He says, For though he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. More on this in a second, but I always like to point out, this predestination is to sanctification. Your predestination is to Christ-likeness. It is not merely predestination to being in heaven. That's built in. Do not neglect the fact that this is predestination to the conformity of Christ's image. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so I'm about to open up the can of worms that is like the biggest debate in Christianity. And we're just going to look at it exegetically, because that's the only way we should be looking at it. I want to point out this word for new simply means to have knowledge beforehand. This is just a definition. Um, the word for new just means to have knowledge beforehand. The specificity in this verse is that it says that God is foreknowing us. It's not referring to what we're going to do, although I believe he knows that too. He knows all things, right? But the language here has a specificity on like he knew you, right? As if there's a person, personhood, a personal relationship here that like, before you existed, God said, that's my kid, right? More on that. And the next thing. And so then those whom he foreknew, he predestined. The language here of predestined is pretty simple. It's exactly what you think. It means to, to predetermine or decide beforehand. There are those who are trying to kind of loosen the definition of this term as if it means like, he's just putting up some guardrails to kind of keep it going in the general. The language here is destiny and determinism. It's built into it that God is saying, that kid that I knew before he existed, I'm making sure he is going to end up Christ-like. Right? That's heavy. That's good. That's before the foundation of the earth, brothers and sisters. More on this in a second. It gets really good. Right? Then it says, those whom he predestined, he called. The word here for call, really complicated, it means to call. Um, right? Here's the thing, though. In the context, it generally, this term is used when we're referring to calling loudly or calling by name. The idea of, I'm calling in such a way that you hear me. It's an efficacious call, right? So it would be like if you know, Tana's on the other side of the room. If I was like, hey, Tana! Like, she knows I'm talking to her. It's loud and it's by name. The implication here is that, that what, that's what God is doing. That kid that was my kid, that I knew, I foreknew before the foundation of the world, I predestined him, and then I called him and I said, hey, hey, Micah, you're my son, right? This is the same idea. 
Reading on. And then it says, those whom he called, he justified. Justified means to declare or render righteous. When we usually use the term getting saved loosely, this is what we're referring to. That Jesus paid your sin debt. Justified. You're declared righteous. Done. And then it says, whom he justified, he glorified. And this simply means to make glorious or render excellent. It is the word we use to refer to the eternal glory that we will be in in heaven. So are you guys following this? Oh, and here's another side note. He's using what is called the aorist tense. Any linguists around? No linguists? I was actually hoping we'd have one. I got a little bit of one. Somebody's a little army intelligence is a linguist, right? Um, actually, if John was here, he did, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, same kind, of, same kind of boat. The aorist tense indicates something that happened in the past with completion, right? It's usually in English, we use the word, the, the letters ED, like I walked. The idea is I was walking, but it got done, right? It, I walked. It's over. It's completed. Done. This is the tense that Paul is using when he is referring to the fact that you were predestined, called, justified, glorified. The language is like, it already happened. In God's eternal plan, it's done. Okay? Whew. Interesting stuff. All right? Always drawing back to this idea. The predestination is for you to become like Christ. Right? It's not just, oh, Christ predestined me, so whatever. Doesn't matter. I'm going to live how I want to. No, it's you're predestined to Christ's likeness. So if you're not growing in that, you should be scared that you're not predestined, right? Um, doesn't mean perfection right now. It means you're growing, right? So more on that in a second. This concept here we see in Romans 8 is what is called the golden chain of redemption. And I think it was William Perkins, some Puritan guy that first called it that. Um, and you'll kind of see here my, my kind of like loose idea, but the idea is he foreknew, so this is eternity past, and you have foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified, linking all the way to future glory. The idea is there's this chain that connects your salvation from before you existed to eternity. And um, my illustration is not as cool as the next slide, which is this uh, from Reftunes. You guys ever seen Reftunes? Check out Reftunes, pretty cool. But he has this really cool cartoon where he's tying it all together. Um, for the sake of illustration, I think it might be helpful. No need. But the understanding here, the big deal, what we're getting at, is here Paul is encouraging in three different ways so far. One, he said all this suffering, all this that we're going through, it's leading to a glory that cannot be compared. Two, the Holy Spirit is groaning with the other members of the Trinity on your behalf. And he's helping you in your weakness. Third, this salvation and this promise of you being formed in the image of Christ is a done deal. He's already planned it, built it into his plan from, all, from before the foundation of the earth and it will reach all the way into eternity. You have hope. So with all that in mind, let's look to verse 31. Won't take us much longer, by the way. We're almost done. Verse 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You guys get this? He's like, if God is the one interceding for you, he's the one whose glory you will see, and he is the one who planned your salvation before the foundation of the world and has declared it from before things existed, it's going to happen. If that God is for us, if you are his child, there is nothing that can go wrong for you on your salvation. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justified. He's like, 
Who can ever bring a charge? It would be like someone trying to bring an accusation when it's like, I have both the judge and the one who paid the debt here. How are you going to bring a, a, a charge against me when he's already paid the debt and judged it? Right? He says on, it continues in verse 34, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who is interceding for us. So he's like, who's going to condemn you? Christ himself who paid the debt is interceding at the right hand of God. And if any time our enemy, the accuser of the brethren, Satan, or even ourselves tries to say, well, what about this? Jesus is like, that one too. I knew that one and I paid for it. Done. This is good news. You see, Paul, Paul has a wonderful way of like building intensity where he's like, I'm covering all these things and he's really logical, but he's also building up to like, this is good news, guys. So verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He's asking rhetorically because you know what's happening? He's, notice he's pointing out tribulation, trial, persecution, distress, fear, so he's talking about being persecuted, and then he addresses famine. Should, should anything in the natural world keep us? right? And then he talks about nakedness. Should poverty keep us from the love of Christ? Should danger, should, should war keep us from it? No, the idea is that nothing, nothing can keep us from the love of God because he's planned this before the foundation of the world. So verse 36, as it is written, For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, when Paul is addressing the issue of perseverance, Notice that at no point does he say, try harder. At no point does he say, well, you know, if you do this, this, and this, and you follow these ten steps, then you'll make it. No, what he says is, look to the God who is the author and finisher of our faith. This is on him, and he has promised and declared for the foundation of the earth that he will complete it. Now, I need to give this caveat, <laughs> right? Not a caveat. I need to give a clarification. This does not mean... Like, oh, well, do whatever I want. No, the idea is the predestination is to sanctification. So I should be doing the things that God has commanded me to do. I should be fellowshipping with the saints. I should be in the word of God. I should be walking in the spirit and letting the fruits of the spirit grow in me. I, I should be edifying the other saints. I should be in prayer. I should be doing these things. I should be taking communion, right? Um, it, all of these things that God has commanded me to do, I should be doing because those are the things he uses to sanctify me. I should live in daily repentance, right? This is what we do, this is why we confess sin one to another. Because I want to be sanctifying, and this is, or being sanctified. So we'll, we'll probably talk more on this in another section. But I just wanted to draw attention to the fact that when God talks about perseverance, he talks about what he does, not what you do. Everybody with me? Cool. All right. So with that in mind, I recognize that there are probably some more theological questions that this has probably arisen. I will, I will do my best to do a little like one person recording and address a couple of things related to like, what about people who fall away? How does that work? Um, and I would say 1 John 1.9 indicates that those who fall away are never with us. 
But that's a whole other big topic that we can talk about. Here's what I would encourage you to, brothers and sisters. I will tell you myself, on a regular basis, as I'm looking at my life and I'm comparing it to the law of God in Scripture, I will often say, like, oh, Lord, what a wretch I am. And in doing so, I have to immediately say, Lord, please forgive me. And I immediately turn to the good news that Jesus paid my sin debt. And as I do that, I am being sanctified in that very moment. Right? I care when I sin. And by God's grace, his Holy Spirit is working in me to remove the sin and to fill me with his Holy Spirit. And as time goes on, I'm becoming more like him, not perfectly. And so I can look to not my own work, but I can look to the work of Christ that is making me more like Jesus and my confidence in his salvation for me grows every day. So if we are to face persecution, brothers and sisters, Paul has just made it quite clear in God's word, there is no amount of persecution that will keep you from the love of Christ. There is no amount of famine, no amount of loss. We sang today that let good and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The idea is that nothing can separate us from the love of God, whether in plenty or in loss. We're his. Our eternal glory is secure. I can celebrate that every day. So more to talk about in future messages, but hopefully you are encouraged in what God is doing. Uh, so let's pray and we will... Uh, We'll turn it over to, I believe, Jill has gospel presentation today. Um, So, Lord, uh, be with us. Um, God, as we are preparing to take communion and remember again what you have done to save us, oh, God, be with us in this time. Receive glory as we commune with you. In Christ's name, amen. All right, Jill, go for it.